Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, let's go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves today as we're marching through this New Testament letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I encourage you to use one of the Bibles that's in the rack in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to keep that Bible uh, there as, as our gift to you. And we encourage you to come back to read it, to gather with Christians, and to uh, give yourself to understanding that Bible better. If you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find 1 Thessalonians on those particular Bibles, either on page 776 or 987. As you're finding that, let me mention um, one thing that uh, I feel compelled as, as your pastor to encourage you to do. Uh, you, I'm sure many of you, if you've been on the internet or seen the news over the last few weeks, are aware of these videos that have surfaced that are showing and really unmasking the absolute demonic brutality of the organization Planned Parenthood and how they are trafficking um, uh, body parts of unborn babies for, uh, for supposedly for research. And I think it's really for selfish gain. And um, I feel like there may be a chance that we as a nation are at a bit of a tipping point where uh, these brutal, demonic practices, if enough people are to see them, uh, that the moral consciousness of our nation can be so shocked that we can be a- awakened from our slumber as a, as a nation and uh, demand that these things change. I think that uh, looking at this movie Selma, uh, which I watched as we were flying to Uganda on the plane, and of course I was not born at that time, but certainly remember seeing news footage of how African Americans were treated in the civil rights movement. When those images began to be seen on the news, uh, that was a tipping point because people that were just sort of, you know, kind of indifferent and ah well I don't certainly I wouldn't treat an African American that way but you know it's not that big of a deal when they saw these images it became a tipping point for our nation and I think that these videos that are coming out um, have the possibility to be a a tipping point in the conscious of America and so I would encourage you to contact your our senator or congressman We'll post on our webpage and on our Facebook page ways that you can write or call your senator or your congressman and express your outrage and encourage them to defund this demonic organization of Planned Parenthood. Uh, Now, if you are a woman or a man that has in the past participated in an abortion, know that the outrage that Christians feel is not directed at you, dear sister or brother, and that there is grace in Christ for uh, our sins as, as, as harsh and as difficult as they may be in our past. God 
is gracious and forgives. But that should not stop us from, um, in this moment in history, being very clear about what our stance is as Christians on life. And so I encourage you to, to consider contacting our elected officials, expressing your outrage and encouraging them to defund Planned Parenthood. That will by no means stop abortion. And I know that there's a thousand and one other things that we need to say about how we need to come around to support mothers that are in unplanned pregnancies and we need to adopt more babies. We need to have more Christians involved in foster care. I know there, there's a thousand things we need to say. I, I get that. But there's one thing that I think that Bible-believing Christians that believe in the sanctity of life can do, and that would be to, to contact our elected officials. So I encourage you to do that. Well, let's turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. From one difficult issue to another, we're going to talk about sexual immorality today. Now, this is one of the reasons we just work our way through books of the Bible so that we don't skip issues like this. And as I'm going to read in just a moment the text, and as I do um, this week as I've been preparing, my heart has been heavy for people in this congregation that I know that have had their lives uh, really devastated in the past and hurt very severely by their own sexual sin or by the sexual sin of, of another. And I want you to know that as we speak very decisively about these things, as we heed the Bible's instructions to, to walk in holiness, the force with which I think Paul is speaking to us and that we need to heed is not meant in any way to condemn us, but to call us to the greater joy of living for Christ. I want you to know that you have been on my heart this week. I've been praying for you, and I, I think virtually everybody in this room, to some degree or another, has been touched by the consequences of sexual sin, and I pray that God would do a wonderful work in our hearts as individuals and as a congregation. So let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and then I'll pray, and then we're going to work our way back through. I think that there's seven truths that are in this text that I want us to see, but let me start by reading and praying. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come to your text, we, 
We are so grateful for the opportunity to gather, to freely open up our Bibles, to sing songs about your greatness and to extol your beauty, to confess that you alone are God and that everything else in this world that would set itself up against you is a false God. We are so grateful for the, the, the freedom that we enjoy to even do that, to gather, to listen to your word. And I pray that today as we think about this, this difficult subject, that you would humble us, that you would simultaneously convict us and encourage us, that your word would both wound and heal, and that you would encourage Christians, that you would spur us on to Christ-likeness. And for those that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, I pray, God, by your sovereign mercy, by your kind grace, that you would draw them, that you would give them the very thing that you require of them, the thing that they can't produce on their own, which is faith in the risen King Jesus, faith in what he has done on the cross to conquer sin. Lord, I pray that you'd do that. Help us. Help my words be helpful today. I pray that you'd do these things for us, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think that there are seven truths, I'm sure many more, but seven truths as I was preparing this week that I want us to see in this text where Paul makes a turn in chapter 4 from looking back about his time with the Thessalonians and encouraging them to endure persecution. Now in chapter 4, he changes a little bit. Now is speaking about their sanctification. So remember, what's on Paul's heart as a pastor is that he only had about three or four weeks with the Thessalonians and he didn't have the opportunity because of persecution and an up, uprising in Thessalonia, Thessalonica. He didn't have an opportunity to teach them all that he wanted to teach them. And so part of that is their life and their sanctification. And now he's writing to encourage them in holiness. So let's look again at, at uh, verses 1 through 8. I want to read verses 1 through 2 again. And, and I want you to see point number one here, I think truth number one from this text. In fact, let's put truth number one up there, and it is this, that the Christian life is to be marked by the lordship of Jesus. So verses one and two, he says, finally then, brothers, we ask, and listen to these words, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought, there's this imperative, you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So clearly at the beginning of this chapter before he even begins to speak about the specifics of abstaining from a particular set of sins he is he's speaking about the lordship of Christ over our entire lives. Friends there is no biblical category for having Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. In fact, that's a popular sort of mindset in the American church where people will say, you know, I, I think I became a Christian and I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but it wasn't until maybe 10 or 15 years later that I accepted Jesus as my Lord. Really, the Bible has, has no category for sort of that, for that bifurcation of the Lordship of Christ in your life. That's not to say by any stretch of the imagination that 
when we become a Christian that we're instantly and perfectly sanctified and we have no more problems with sin. I mean, come on. We know that, right? I mean, I mean yeah, we, we get that. But it is to say that when we are redeemed and reconciled by Christ, when we are trusting in him, something happens. We are justified. We are, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And now Christ, the, the, the number one characteristic of the Christian is that their heart has been made alive and their desires have changed. They will not pursue Christ perfectly the moment after salvation, but their life now must be marked by the lordship of Christ, certainly immediately and then in ever-increasing ways as they grow in Christ, as they grow into the image of Christ. A couple months ago, we talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this German pastor who lived uh, in the 30s and 40s, and he was uh, actually a professor in America, came from Germany to teach at a seminary in the United States. As he saw the Third Reich uh, starting to rise on on the horizon, he went back to his native Germany and gave himself to the organization of the underground church. And he believed so strongly in fighting the evil of Hitler that he actually started to organize a plot to, to assassinate Hitler. Uh, and he was thrown into prison. And while he was in prison, in, at the end of World War II, in a German prison for several years, wrote several letters and books. One of them was The Cost of Discipleship. And two weeks before the end of World War II, he was, he was, uh, he was executed and hung by the Third Reich. And was, was, he passed away at 39 years of age and was a great loss to the church. But he wrote this incredible book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he contrasted cheap grace versus true biblical grace. And he talked about the cheap grace that speaks of trusting in Christ without true repentance. And I think, I think that, is, that is so prevalent in American church culture. It's, a, it's kind of like we're, we put so much emphasis on the gospel of grace that we treat any instruction or imperative is kind of like the boogeyman of legalism, right? I mean, no, no, don't you, I mean, the moment that, you know, oh God, it's all grace, it's all grace, it's all grace, that's the indicative of the gospel. This is what God has done in Christ, not because of anything you have done, but solely because of his free grace to make you his own. And then there's the rest of the Bible, which is the imperative, because God has done this through no effort of your own, but solely because of his grace, now walk in this way. And many people are allergic to the other half of the gospel that says, now live this way, and they throw up the boogeyman. And the moment you say that this is what it means to be a Christian, they throw up the boogeyman legalism card, right? Thank you, brother. One, 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 one person agrees. Thank you, Scotty. That's encouraging. And that's cheap grace, confession without repentance. And that's what Paul is zeroing in on here is that the Christian life is to be marked by the lordship of Jesus. He continues in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So this brings us to point number two or truth number two from this text is that God's will for us is our lifelong transformation into Christ-likeness. I think that's probably, we started this church a little over 10 years ago. 
Before that, I was on staff at another church, I think for about seven years, so almost 17 years, 18 years in pastoral ministry. This is probably the question that I wrestle with most with people, especially young people, is what is God's will for my life? And embedded in that question is this idea that I want specifics. I want to know who to marry, what job to take, whether to do this, whether to do that. And, and Paul is telling us, or he's backing up and he's, he's going much deeper than the exteriors of what our hands are doing or our, which direction our feet are headed in. And he's concerned about our, our heart. He says this is God's will for our life that we would be sanctified. And that word sanctification is just a biblical word that means growing in the image of Christ, to become more and more like Christ. And, and what does this look like over the long haul? Of course it's progressive and it's gritty and it involves getting calluses on your hand and it's slow because remember, to be a Christian, to, be, to have your life marked by the lordship of Jesus and to be in a lifelong pursuit of Christ's likeness does not mean that you're not still struggling with sin, right? In fact, that, well, we say it, I mean, you guys, are, you guys probably have this quote memorized yourself now. We've repeated it so often here at Cross Point. William Arnault, the, the, 19, the 1800s uh, British theologian. He's my third favorite Brit behind Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones. William Arnault, Billy A is what I like to call him. Back in the 1800s, long beard, super, super uh, 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 a great writer, he wrote this. He says that the difference, you, you guys can almost say this with me, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, while the other, meaning the Christian, takes part with a reconciled God against his own sins. So, so do you see that? I mean, that is so powerful. When I read that quote about seven or eight years ago, or I heard it, and then I looked it up on my Google machine, and then I had a picture of William, William Arnault. Oh, it was awesome. It made, it made the quote even better when I saw a picture of this guy. It became so helpful to me in my ongoing battle against sin, right? Because I realized that, the, that what, what, what Paul has in view here is our posture, our collective posture. It's not to, not to say, oh, sin's not important, but to say that we are taking God's side to fight our sin. We're taking the reconciled God's side against our flesh. And that is, Paul calls that, God's will for our life. Think about the implications of that. that. Think about when my two oldest boys were young, and I remember this picture where we had this backyard and the time of the house we lived in um, before we had a bunch of other children and grew out of that house. And they would, you know, kind of come and want to play and do things. And I remember one little instance where they were wanting to play in the front yard of the backyard and it's just like this picture that stuck stuck in my mind it's like we're children that are coming to our dad and we're asking for all these specifics on how he wants us to play and that particular instance that made me think about this is one of the brothers who shall remain nameless was whacking the other brother over the head with a like a stiff foam sword 
And that stiff foam sort of spent some time out in the sun, and so it really wasn't very foamy anymore. It was kind of like, like hard cardboard. And I was like, I don't care what you do, whether you pray, play in the front yard or the backyard, or whether you play, you know, cowboys and Indians, or, you know, kick the ball around. Just don't be, don't kill each other, right? So I'm not so much concerned about what you're playing with like how you're playing, right? And I think that that kind of gets to the heart of what what Paul is saying here is, is God's will is so much deeper than what job I should take or what person I should marry. I'm not saying that God's not concerned about all those intricacies of every detail of our life and there's not guidance to be had there. But, but, but I think the call here is to go much, much deeper than that. And God's will is for our hearts to be so transformed by the lordship of Christ that we are in this progressive journey of Christ-likeness, taking God's side against our sin. Okay. Then let's read verse 3 again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And how does Paul describe sanctification in this setting to these Thessalonians? Not that this is all that there is to sanctification, but this is what he's zeroing in on now and what the Holy Spirit would have us look at. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. So I take that clearly as a truth. The third thing that we want to look at is that we are to make a clean cut. That's that word abstain. That we are to make a clean cut from any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. This phrase that we have in our English Bibles, sexual immorality, comes from this Greek word, porneia, where we actually get the word pornography from in the English language. But this word porneia in the original language that Paul wrote in Greek encompasses all sexual activity outside of the one flesh union between a man and a woman. So when you see this word, this phrase sexual immorality, porneia in the original language, it, it covers all human sexual activity and it classifies all human sexual activity as sin if it is outside the bounds of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. So a couple different categories just to be utterly clear. Sex between a man and a woman who are not married is sexual immorality. Sex between two people of the same gender is sexual immorality. Sex between two people who are engaged to be married but not yet married is sexual immorality. Sex between two people who are just boyfriend and girlfriend is sexual immorality. Even included in that is giving yourself over to lust and having sex with yourself is sexual immorality. This is what's in view. There's no, there's no wiggle room biblically. There's, there's no, like, oh, well, what about this? No, when, when this phrase is here in the text, every reader that was hearing Paul would clearly understand that 
the scriptures are saying, cut off, make a clean cut from any expressing yourself sexually in any way outside of the covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman. So some common questions I hear often in our culture and sometimes meeting with people. Well, Brad, we're, you know, I really love him. He really loves me. We're going to get married anyway. In fact, we're, we're engaged. So, you know, what does it matter? God understands. Well, a couple things that I think we need to think about when we, when we ask that question. First is, dear friend, do you see that in that instance, you are making yourself the center of authority. You're saying, you know, I know this is written in God's Word. We're going to talk about why God would write that there. But, you know, it doesn't really apply. I mean, that was just, you know, that was old times, and things have changed now. Yeah, things have changed now. Do you realize that maybe you are a product of your sinful culture more than you are a product of biblical culture? And you're, when you say, oh, well, you know, God understands, it's like you're coming to God's Word as a kind of, it's like, it's like a Subway sandwich line. You know, I think, oh, give me some banana peppers, but I don't like jalapenos. Put a little mustard on it. Hold the mayonnaise. A little bit of salad. Uh, no, just a little bit. Toast it lightly. A little bacon. More cheese, please. Can I have some extra turkey? Do, do you see that? Like we, we come to God like His Word is a Subway sandwich bar. And that, friends, like God, the, then the locus, the, the locus, the, the, the center point of authority becomes what we decide should or should not apply to us. So, what if we take that same bit of reasoning and we, we apply it to every part of the Scripture that's difficult? Right? Then do you see how the authority of God's word falls apart and we become the authority rather than God's holy inspired word? So not only does it make yourself the authority rather than the scripture when you think that way, you may, you may think then, you may think then, okay, but all right, I get that. And I realize that I, we shouldn't engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, but you know, like, that's kind of mean of God to do that, you know, because it, it just feels so good, right? It feels so good. Well, here, here's, what, here's what I would, would say to that, is that sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is meant to display and to draw us into a joy that goes much deeper than physical pleasure. So when we view God as saying, you know, God, I, I, I'm upset at you that you've taken something so pleasurable and limited it just to marriage because I love this girl or I love this guy anyway, so why can't I just enjoy a little bit of what we're going to give ourselves to as a husband and wife, you know, for the next 50 years or so? 
But when we think that way, what we do is we completely misunderstand God's deeper purpose of sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, and we turn it into merely an act of physical pleasure and love between an earthly man and woman. When in reality, God gives intimacy, he gives marriage between a man and a woman to be a display of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. He, he gives marriage between a man and a woman. And he even makes our bodies physiologically in such a way that they complement each other. And I don't need to draw a picture for you, do I, boys and girls? You understand what I'm talking about? He makes our bodies complement each other in such a way not just for procreation, certainly that's part of it, not just for physical pleasure, certainly that's part of it, but to display the uniting of Christ to his bride. I'm not saying that there's anything sexual between the church and Jesus. I am saying that God takes the earthly temporary gift of sexual union between a husband and a wife as a temporary display of the eternal reality of Jesus covenanting and joining himself to his bride forever. And the pleasure of sexual intimacy is not meant to dead end on mere physical pleasure. It's meant to display the eternal, ever-increasing joy of being in covenant with God. It goes far beyond an orgasm, friends, it goes far beyond a moment of pleasure or titillation. It is meant to be rooted in the deeper joy of being united to Christ forever. And when a man and a woman understand that, and in God's beautiful, wonderful gift, he gives all of this physical pleasure. When we understand that, and when we anchor our sexuality in that covenant bond of marriage, our joy and our pleasure goes beyond the temporary physical moment and displays the surpassing worth of being in covenant love with Jesus forever and ever. And friends, that is what sex is primarily given for. Not just for our temporary passing physical pleasure. And so when we say, well, why has God robbed me of this pleasure? We, 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 are, we are cheapening pleasure. Do you see that? It's like that beautiful Lewis quote out of The Weight of Glory, that book. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Weight of Glory. I can see that quote on page 26 of the book in the upper right-hand corner. He says that, we, that people, people are like mulling around like children on a beach and we're, we're playing in the mud and the sand and we're satisfied with this little broken thing when what God offers, is, offers us is this beautiful vaca vacation and he says that we are far too easily pleased, we're far too easily satisfied. And when we think of sex merely as God robbing us of some physical pleasure, why can't I do it? It's not hurting anybody. What we're doing as the created is we're completely bankrupting the creator's design for deep abiding joy. Do you see that? And thirdly, I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll back off this because I know you're getting a little weary. You're like, okay, but I get it, I get it, I get it. And listen, listen to me, young fiancé. When, when you say to your serious boyfriend or girlfriend, and usually it's the guy saying it to the girl, so let me zero in on, on dudes here. When you say, 
some of you right now are probably listening to me. You're coming up with your argument to refute everything that Brad is saying. I got baby, don't, you know, come on, no, no. Listen to me. One other thing that waiting for marriage does is that you're communicating to your spouse-to-be, who may be your fiancé right now, you're communicating that you have the ability to delay gratification and build trust that there's something greater than momentary physical pleasure and that you can wait for the bounds that God has put it in and then 20 years into your marriage, when it's dry and it's, you guys are frustrated with each other, you've built up that trust, right? You're not one of these people that just, just grabs everything that you want at that moment. You've built up this spiritual muscle to where when temptation comes 10 or 15 or 20 years down the line, you've built up this trust and this way of living where you can delay instant gratification for the greater joy. And when you give in, just constantly, ah, but Brad doesn't know what he's talking about. Ah, it doesn't really apply to us. I love you, baby. Come on, we're going to be married in a couple months anyway. You are, you, are, you are like a little kid who's at Target or Walmart or the, the Spectrum store who just wants to grab the candy bar because it's right in front of you. Do you see that? Young women, don't marry a guy that can't control his passions. If, he, if, he, if he's going to treat you like that just for the next three months, 20 years from now, he's going to be the type of guy that's much more vulnerable to giving into all sorts of stuff than a guy who can anchor himself in God's word for the greater joy and build trust and faithfulness. Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? Now listen, all, all of us are feeling, oh my gosh, I just feel terrible. I shouldn't have come to church today. This stinks. <laughs> no, I mean, that was funny. I get it. I'm... I'm trying to make a serious point. <laughs> like, like, don't think that this, like, don't think that, like, like the force and the passion which I'm delivering this is me coming from some sort of personal moral high ground. Like, like, we, I have, like, I have made a mess of these things in my life in the past and by God's grace I've been redeemed and, and this room is full of people that have made a mess like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to put like spiritual ammonia underneath our nostrils so that we'll see this, right? Not to beat us down but to see this because, because as we'll see in a moment that God, God takes these things very seriously. Okay, let's keep going. Verse, verses four and five. He says, each one of you then should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Which then I think brings us to truth number four. In Christ, the Christian is freed from slavery to sin and freed to obey God. A very important gospel truth, and we touched on it earlier when we talked about Bonhoeffer, is that grace doesn't only come to forgive, it also comes to empower us to fight sin. Know the full orb of the gospel. Christ's work on the cross is not just to forgive us of our past sin, but then 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this beautiful verse says that he made him, God the Father, made God the Son 
to be sin for us so that in him, the son, we might become the righteousness of God. So there's this transfer. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. His Holy Spirit indwells every person at the moment of conversion and they are now empowered, not perfectly on this earth for the rest of their life, but progressively to fight sin and to take God's side against their sin. Let me just read a little bit out of Romans 6 and then we'll keep moving. Romans 6, such an important chapter. Oh, young army soldier that's here today that's getting absolutely destroyed by lust. Mark Romans 6 in your Bible and camp in this chapter. Camp in this chapter while you do, while you, while you navigate through just the dark alleys of sexual perversion in that infantry battalion. Camp in Romans chapter 6. Listen to what it says. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Just like what Will read at the beginning out of Colossians 1, we've died to our old way of life and now we're hidden in Christ. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So we're dead to our old way of life and we're alive now to our new way of life. That doesn't mean that that old man doesn't try and rear his head up above the baptismal waters, but it's our, now our privilege because we're in Christ to push him back down under the water. Verse 5, for if you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. If you're a Christian, sin has lost its dominion over you. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, listen to this. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's like this old man, he drowned in the baptismal waters of the work of the gospel in your life. That's what baptism symbolizes, right? He's dead. He's dead. He's the old man, the, the heart, the, 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 the passions that controlled you, now they're dead. But Paul says there in verse 11 that you now must consider him dead. Like it's an ongoing work. He's still underneath the water. He's going to rear up his head every now and again. You've got to push him down and say, breathe water, you sorry joker. Stay on him. That's, that's the Christian life. That's sanctification. Standing on top of that guy in that pool, not letting him get a breath so that he gets life in him. Because he's dead. He's dead, but you must consider him dead. And the Christian is free from slavery and free to obey God. Let's keep going. Verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. I think this brings up point number five, truth number five. 
that the consequences of sexual sin always go beyond the one committing the sin. Paul says that we should not transgress or wrong our brother in this matter. I think maybe what he has in view there is sexual immorality or adultery, that you're wronging the person's spouse, or if you're having sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend and then you guys split up, you've wronged their future spouse, you've transgressed your brother. I even think about the man who may say, well, you know, I'm not in the flesh, you know, sleeping around, but, you know, I'm just kind of occasionally lusting and looking at pornography. It's not really hurting anybody other than myself. I'd say actually you are hurting people other than yourself because when you give yourself to that, it absolutely saps you of any spiritual confidence and vitality. If you're married, it will completely disconnect you from your wife which will have an effect on your children. If you're not married, it will so warp your view of women that you will objectify women and it will absolutely, like, like termites inside of a two-by-four, it will eat you away from the inside out. And sexual sin, all sin in fact, but sexual sin can never be contained. It always spills out into the community through tangible and intangible ways. And then another thing that I think we need to see, it's in the text and we need to consider it. Truth number six is that giving yourself over to sin, continually giving yourself over to it, may indicate that you're not truly a Christian and bring God's judgment on you. Look at what Paul says again in verse six. He says, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because... The Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, that doesn't mean that we're going to get punished by God if we're Christians on Judgment Day for all the little things that we did. But I think Paul is warning here people that may think that they're Christians but are deceiving themselves and giving themselves over to sin. He's saying there's coming a day when you will be like those people in Matthew chapter 7 and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I think the clear indication here is that giving yourself over repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again to sin, in particular in view here, sexual sin, may indicate that you're not truly a Christian. And what you need to do now is to run from that. You need to make a clean break from that. You need help. You need to get with somebody in this room before you leave this place and say, God, rescue me from this body of death. I'm not saying that if we sin, we're not Christians. 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I am saying that if we continually give ourselves over to sin without some measure of repentance and allow it to master us, we very well may be giving evidence that we are not truly born again and that we have not died to our old way of life. And friends, if that is you, today God is saying to you, run to me, come to me, make a break, be first, be, be maybe for the first time born again and trust in Christ. And then, verse 7, all of this because God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Which brings us to our final truth. 
And I think it's so important. Holiness is not mutually exclusive with joy. Rather, it's the only place it can truly be found. And I think this is just so important. This is so important. Because we're not saying here, this is not what Paul, this is not what the Holy Spirit is saying. All right, boys and girls, we know what you're doing. Stop it. And be good little boys and girls. And tuck in your shirt and comb your shirt, or tuck in your shirt and comb your hair, run off to Sunday school, and be good little boys and girls so you can get a treat at the end of the lesson if you're good. That sort of joyless, moralistic, God is watching you and he's going to get you if you slip up sort of way, right, that a lot of us grew up in. That's not the call of the gospel. The call to holiness is a call to joy. We are not called to fight sin by gritting our teeth and denying all of this good stuff that's out there that if God was less grumpy, he would let us enjoy. But he's concocted this scheme which makes us to be kind of like joyless, you know, conservative Christians. That's not what the Bible says. We are to fight temptation by saying no to counterfeit joys and pleasures and going after the true joy and pleasure of God's design and plan for human sexuality. That means that giving yourself, let's, let's, just, just, be, let's just be clear about this, giving yourself only to one woman or one man in heterosexual marriage, even if you have to wait decades for it, is far better than momentary counterfeit pleasures along the way. It also means that if God has called you to celibacy and you never experience sexual connection or intimacy with a spouse here on this life, that, you, that, that God has joy and pleasure awaiting you that will far outweigh giving yourself in to some momentary sin to transgress God's law. The friends, th- we have got to settle on this. And let me show it to you scripturally. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. We see it in, in, in Moses' life. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, when Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I love that verse because it admits that there is some fleeting pleasure in sin, but it's fleeting, and the moment it passes, it turns into despair. Verse 26, look how Moses fought the fleeting pleasures, the fleeting counterfeit pleasure of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses said no to temporary pleasure because he knew that God had something better for him. Do you see that? Like, that's the key. God, friends, listen to this. God is not withholding joy from us. Holiness, living according, fighting for this, gritting our teeth, linking arms with other people, confessing sin, fighting temptation. That is the pathway to joy. And that's the call of the Christian. So I end with these two exhortations, two gospel truths to remember, and then we're going to come around the Lord's table and take communion together. Remember, 
these two gospel truths, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave victorious. I think we all instinctively understand this. Like he bore, if you failed, if you're making a complete mess of your life in this area, know that Jesus died for our sins, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that he rose victorious over that sin and conquered it. But here's this other gospel truth that I want you to see, that sometimes we forget. We, we think about the atonement. We think about Jesus' work on the cross, and we forget about Jesus' work in the flesh as a human being. And the second truth I want us to remember is that Jesus came in the flesh and endured temptation. He faced it for us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So if you have an image of God up there with his arms folded, with a frown on his face, disgusted with you because you continue to fall, Listen to this text. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see what that text is saying? Is that Jesus, God the Son, became a man, took on what Romans 8 says is the likeness of sinful flesh, endured every temptation so that he would be able to more greatly and more compassionately and with more sympathy identify with us so that we, when we are being destroyed by that old man wanting to rear his head up from the water, Jesus doesn't stand distant from us saying, what are you going to do now? Like a ranger instructor. I remember ranger school and you're just spazzing around on a patrol. You army guys know what I'm talking about. And there's some ranger instructor or drill sergeant. I see a couple of you drill sergeants. There's some private spazzing around. What are you going to do now, ranger? What are you going to do now, private? And you're spazzing around like some idiot. <laughs> I don't know. That's not what Jesus, that's not God. He draws near to us. Do you see that? He draws near. He draws near to us and he wraps his arms around us and he bids us. He bids us to joy. He bids us to holiness. He bids us to pleasure. He bids us to say no to those things so that we will finally walk in true pleasure and true joy. That's what Jesus does. That's the gospel. Not a God who stays far and expects us to come to him, but a God who descends into our muck and mire and takes on the likeness of sinful flesh, resists it without sin, and turns back sin and defeats it. And now offers to us, he comes, like he says, come, come. It's not arms folded. It's him saying, come, like come, 
to true joy. That's the call for people that are being destroyed from sexual immorality right now. Come, come, come to Jesus, to true joy. And we celebrate that this morning as we come to this table, as we come to this bread and this juice that represents his body that was destroyed for us, that was broken for us, that was decimated for us, that bore the penalty of sin. We are coming to that bread, Jesus, the bread of life, who says, come, come, come to true joy and walk in holiness. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about these things, as we consider our own lives, I pray that you would give us a wonderful and beautiful and spirit-infused mixture of conviction not condemnation, but conviction and hope. Hope in the crucified and resurrected and risen King that we would be people that are marked not just by a confession of Jesus' work, but the Lordship of His reign in all of our lives for the young man or young woman that is being ravaged by sexual immorality. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would see how near that you have drawn and that they would run to you. For the married man who is about to ruin his life through some secret flirtatious relationship with somebody that's not his wife and he's on the brink of destruction would you cause him to look up and see that you have drawn near to him and that you have endured every temptation and you've defeated it and now your arms are open wide beckoning that man to true joy Lord, there are a thousand other situations and broken situations, but there's one great answer, and it is that you have come into our devastated lives and bid us to come to true joy. So as we come to this table this morning, may we see that. May we see the sufficiency, the beauty, the joy of obeying Christ. For the single person in this room who has made an idol out of sexual intimacy, God, would you wean their hearts from that temporary thing set their heart on the joy that only you can give. Or would you do these things as we come to this table? 
for your glory and our joy, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.